The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. I am so excited to announce that I have just joined City Fertility as a fertility specialist. City Fertility is one of Australia's leading IVF and fertility service providers and is part of the Char Medical Group, a renowned global healthcare network dedicated to advanced research in reproductive medicine while delivering a really empathetic and personalized approach to patient care. Of course, I'm continuing to consult from my rooms in the RPA Medical Center in Newtown here in Sydney. On today's episode, I chat with City Fertility affiliated dietitian Stephanie Velarkis, who has been on the show before talking about endometriosis. Today, we dive into the topic of the combined oral contraceptive pill. We go deep with Stephanie where she opens up about her personal experiences of taking the pill. I'll also be chatting about my experiences too. Stephanie shines a light on how the pill can affect our gut health and cause nutrient deficiencies. A bit about Stephanie. Stephanie is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist, also known as the dietologist. She runs a women's health and fertility focused nutrition practice in Newtown, Sydney, and online. Stephanie is passionate about early life nutrition, which means healthier women and men before conception to improve fertility and enhance outcomes from fertility throughout pregnancy and beyond, as we know this impacts the disease risk of children. Stephanie is part of a national network of dietitians who focus on early life nutrition called Nutrition Plus. She also teaches the next generation of dietitians at the University of Sydney. Stephanie hosts her own podcast, a really good one, the Fertility Friendly Food Channel, where she delivers snack-sized episodes on all things fertility and women's health nutrition. She's also launched her new signature program for preconception nutrition for couples to improve the nutrition in the three-month period leading up to pregnancy. She is a busy lady and knows lots, so I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Stephanie Velarkis. Hey, Tash. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about the pill uh, and uh, nutrient depletion. Now, this has only come to my recognition or knowledge the last few years. Uh, certainly, when I was doing my training, we never really talked about the pill and nutrient depletion. Before we discuss it, though, I know you have been on the pill because you've been open about your your gynae history. Uh, what was your experience of being on the pill? So I got onto the pill when I was in second year physiology at uni and I was learning about embryology and I just was like, oh my goodness, I need to get myself sorted here. And I had really bad acne as a teenager all the way through to university as an adult. Uh, it's only really been now that things have settled down for me. Um, but I just thought, you know, the pill is a, is a two-for-one, two you know, contraceptive, great, uh, get help with my acne apparently, great. So I took myself up to the DP, got the pill. The first nine months was great. I was like, oh, this is so easy. My periods are so much lighter and more manageable. Uh, and, and I just kept doing what I was doing. So I wanted to skip my period. 
because I had a big dance performance coming up and I just thought, you know what, it'd be really convenient if I could to not have my period. So I went to the GP and I asked because I didn't want to mess around with it unless, you know, I, I didn't want to mess around with hormones and things if I didn't know what I was doing. And they were like, yep, you can do that. You know, I wouldn't recommend doing it all the time, but, you know, if it's just this one-off thing, no problem. So I did it. I just kept taking active pills. I ran them all together and I kept, I bled like I was going to have a period anyway, even though I was taking the active pills. Super inconvenient. You know, moddy body undies were not a thing back then (laughs) to help a girl out. So it was really annoying. But I went back to the GP and I told them, I said, look, I did that, but I just kept bleeding. They brushed it off, no big deal. Four years after this, I never skipped a period again, but I continued to experience significant breakthrough bleeding to the point I became so iron deficient, I required an infusion. So it was years on years. I tried lots of different pills. Um, The one that lasted the longest was a type of pill that graded up the estrogen each week. So you went from a lower dose to a slightly higher dose the following week to the highest dose. and then. the sugar pills, but I could never, ever skip a period. I wasn't allowed to on that particular um, pill. So last year, the I changed pills again, and I ended up going on up to a higher estrogen dosage. I believe it was 50 milligrams? Micrograms, yeah. Micrograms, it sounds more plausible. <laughs> and honestly, my brain and my skin went nuts. Absolutely nuts. My mood was horrendous and I never had any mood problems before and my skin was worse than it had ever been. And so I just went, you know what, I'm just sick of this merry-go-round. I've I've done all this before for years. I'm just going to stop. I just need to stop and just find what my baseline is. I just want to know what my baseline is. I want to know what's going on. And so my options then became... Another type of contraceptive uh, being an IUD, like the Marina, which is what I have now, post-endo surgery, or the implanon. Um, and that's the point when I, when I started to get investigated for endometriosis when I came off the pill because you could see what was actually happening with my cycle at that point. So I had not many issues with the pill to start with. I never thought, saw them as major issues. It was just really inconvenient. Um, but eventually did get to a point where it was starting to be a major problem and so I decided to change altogether. Mm. The um, the pill, I mean, when I think of the pill, I think of my experience and how negative it kind of was. I was on the pill for a number of years. Firstly, in my 20s when I was at medical school, I had bad acne. And mm. I, I put that down to really bad diet, I think, and stress because uh, mm. my, my diet at uni was terrible. Um, mm. And I saw a dermatologist who put me on Roaccutane. Uh, there was never any mention of diet, lifestyle, uh, you know, maybe take some zinc to help your skin, nothing. And, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, and I still see that, you know, unfortunately not everyone who has acne as the privilege to work with people who do discuss diet. Uh, so mm. I would say to women, if you have acne, pimples, look at your diet first before reaching for the combined oral contraceptive pill. What are your thoughts, Steph? 
Yeah, I think, you know, just simple things, drink that off water, you know, like simple, simple stuff. Um, wash your face, make sure you use products that aren't irritating your skin, you know, talk to somebody about that stuff as well. And, yeah, most definitely vitamin C is important for skin and zinc and there's so many different things that you can buy it and even, you know, B7. So lots of different things that go into skin integrity and skin health. Um, you know, but I think as well, for some, it goes beyond just that. And I think that's when, you know, maybe some women have tried, you know, the skin supplements and the water and everything, and they still struggle. And I think, you know, that it's it's such an easy option to take the pill and it's often one of the first things that's recommended. So, and for some, it's super effective and that's great. But yeah, as we're going to discuss, uh, there is, other implications you need to think about when it comes to taking the pill. So what issues can the pill cause from a gut and nutrient perspective? Mm. So it's been actually long research that the oral contraceptive pill can alter nutrient absorption for some pretty critical nutrients. So we've known this since the 60s and 70s. It's not new research. However, it has been replicated because I know somebody will say, that's old. <laughs> um, it is old but um, in terms of research, but we have replicated it in more recent publications. It is such, such a relevant topic. One in four Australian women at some point in their reproductive life are going to take the pill. And the WHO have come out and said that this area of research of nutrient absorption and the pill uh, is a key research priority that does need more attention by the scientific community in terms of research. So it's not, you know, just something to brush under the rug. I think it is something that we all need to have collective more awareness of. Uh, And I think that's what's so good about podcasts and blogs and the digital age is the accessibility to this kind of information. When did the WHO come out with that? Oh, I don't know what year it was. It was a little while ago. It might have been 2012 or 2013. Don't quote me on it, though. Okay. Not sure. I'll have to look into it again. Mm. Um, But, yeah, it it was considered a key a key priority. I think especially if you think about it in any parts of, say, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there more than, you know, coming from an informed perspective. But, you know, I think in parts of the developing world, they do use use the oral contraceptive pill for women. And I think, you know, if their dietary adequacy isn't the best, you know, on top of that, having the pill can can create more problems in, in different ways. So it can solve one problem of, um, of uh, reproductive issues and maybe um, contribute to other problems elsewhere. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, not just like in our society today, but also just thinking about other parts of the world where the pill is being used and how that could potentially have an implication as well. Um, but, yeah, some of the key nutrients that can be depleted for women taking the pill, uh, zinc, that it's been found to be lower in the blood of women taking the pill. Zinc is pretty important for egg health, and most women of reproductive age don't get enough zinc. So making sure that you're getting enough seafood, protein foods, legumes, beans, nuts, seeds is really important. 
Magnesium. I know this is one of your favourites, Tash. Yes, my <laughs> um, favourite. Your favourite. Um, it's a common nutrient that we know is lacking in people's diets. There's no particular one like food that's going to like save the day when it comes to magnesium. It's a combination of lots of different foods and having a good dietary quality overall. Um, we think that the reason why the pill affects magnesium is because it can change the calcium-magnesium ratio in the blood, which is why clotting risk can increase as well, which is often why your doctor will do a blood pressure and do some history taking about clotting risk before they prescribe you the pill. So making sure you're getting enough green leafy veg, fruit, nuts, seeds, legumes and seafood to ensure you're getting enough magnesium and, of course, consider supplementation. Uh, the best, most absorbable form of magnesium is magnesium citrate. Um, and so the only thing to be mindful of with supplementing magnesium is if you have a bit of a loose bowel issue, that sometimes it can um, over-relax the bowel further uh, and it can exacerbate diarrhea. Uh, the other nutrient is selenium, which is a key mineral and also an antioxidant. It's important for thyroid function, especially for women with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Uh, the pill can interfere directly with selenium absorption. Uh, knowing how much selenium you're getting is really, really tricky. As a dietitian, it's one of those nutrients that oh, you can just completely not really get a good gauge. You know, even if you're eating protein foods and Brazil nuts, it really depends on the soil in which they're grown in, where, you know, which country those foods came from. Most of our soils here in Australia and most modern-day soils, in fact, are selenium depleted. So we're not actually all that sure as a population what our selenium status is. So I think that is a really tricky one to get right, but could be potentially quite problematic uh, if we're not getting enough of it. If we don't need a lot, but we, we need enough to function well. And then we've got our B vitamins. So folate, riboflavin, which is B, B2, and vitamins B6 and B12. So folate is obviously the one that we all think of when we think about pregnancy, we need enough of it. And what do most women come off the pill for? Not all, but most women come off the pill to start to try to conceive. And so if folate is being depleted for potentially years by the pill, your folate does need to be replaced and, and for a period of time before you actively start trying to conceive. And I really wish women got more of this education, you know, either when they got recommended the pill or even, you know, in PE at school when we learn about contraception, that there is, you know, maybe not this level of detail, but there is a nutritional implication. There is a time period where you might need to kind of do some work to recuperate all these nutrient stores before you do conceive after coming off the pill. Um, it's really important that at least for three months before you try to conceive to be taking a good quality prenatal supplement that's customised to your requirements. And so I cannot stress that enough. Um, you know, if you haven't been taking it whilst you were taking the pill and you come off, allow three months to kind of do that nutritional preparation, both supplementary and dietary to you know, lay that fertile ground for conceiving. 
there's been some research about B2 or riboflavin. Um, it's useful in managing migraines, which tends to be a common issue that women report around their periods or uh, when taking the pill especially. Um, but B2 can be uh, depleted when taking the pill, so that's another one to be mindful of. It's mostly found in dairy milk, so and that's a food group that many women tend to not get enough of and avoid as well, so that's another one to keep in mind. Uh, B6, not having enough B6 can affect progesterone synthesis and also PMS symptoms, so it's probably a good one to get on top of. And B12 is also critical for healthy red blood cells and nerve function and our body's ability to utilise folate. And then vitamin C, again, another water-soluble antioxidant. This one's really easy to get enough of if you're eating enough fruit and veg, but we know that 95% of Australians aren't. This one really isn't all that worth supplementing, in my opinion. It is so much more worth it to do it from the diet. You just need to spruce it up a little bit and you are hitting it and exceeding your targets every single day without an expensive supplement, which most of it is water-soluble. Again, you're going to lose a lot in your urine. So um, just be mindful of that as well. Not all of these are going to be – some of them are worth supplementing. Some of them are going to be worth, you know, refocusing on your diet. In terms of gut symptoms, a lot of my clients with IBS-like symptoms, irritable bowel syndrome-like symptoms in particular, are concerned that their hormonal contraceptives are contributing to the worsening of their symptoms of bloating, abdominal pain, flatulence, and altered bowel habits. The research that I've been able to dig up, and I remember emailing you about this too, Tash, like, hey, is there any link? Like, I can't, I can't really seem to find much on this topic. There was one paper, but the links were super tenuous. There was a slightly higher incidence of IBS with some particular ingredients uh, of uh, contraceptive pills. So uh, I'm probably going to butcher this name, Drosperinone. Drosperinone. Yeah, Drosperinone, yep. So that one has been associated with a higher incidence of gut symptoms. I think what is important to also consider when it comes to gut symptoms and any kind of medication or any kind of um, looking at what could be causing it, often it's multifactorial. You know, if the pill is having a negative impact on mental health, which for some women it does, the gut-brain axis, which is this bi-directional link via the vagal nerve between the gut and the brain, uh, there's neurotransmitters going up and down there Uh, If our mental health is suffering, our gut and the microbiota that live there can actually be altered by that and can change how our bowel functions in terms of how quickly things move through, which is called motility, and therefore whether you become a bit more constipated or experience diarrhea. You can also become a lot more sensitive to gas and also a lot more sensitive to pain. So it's tricky to know what mechanism that contraceptive pill could be acting to influence your bowels and it shouldn't be the only thing that you take into consideration. You do really need to think about the bigger picture and definitely have a discussion with your gynecologist, your doctor around what contraceptive options might be right for you um, and the symptoms or the issues that you're experiencing Um, because obviously if you're trying to avoid pregnancy, going off a contraceptive pill with no appropriate replacement could 
obviously result in an unexpected pregnancy. So just be mindful that sometimes you try and solve one problem, uh, you can maybe cause another. So just be yeah mindful of that, obviously. It's very interesting that you mentioned that B12 riboflavin uh, is more deficient in pill users. The other thing is uh, zinc. So mm-hmm. I see this often as well. Women come to me on the pill, want to stop the pill so they can do some egg freezing. And I say to them, well, if you're on the pill, you're likely to be zinc deficient. Zinc deficiency plays a big role in, in, in the quality of the egg and certainly fertilization, when fertilization and zinc go hand in hand. So I, I stress that these women don't go straight into egg freezing, but prepare themselves as they would if they were to actually actively try to have a baby. Um, yeah. It's so important. I can't stress it enough. Mm, so, so important. It's It should be ter- – and the women that do um, seek nutrition advice pre-egg freezing – you know, they at the end of the day, whether you use them next year or in ten years, you want them to be the healthiest, <laughs> the healthiest that they can be, and the most likely to fertilize and all that good stuff. So, making sure that all those key nutrients are being replaced um, as well is really important. Yeah, just on the note of migraines, I think I wonder if I've um, archived it. I did have a blog post up about migraines and all the different nutritional strategies that you can use. Some are related to food intolerances. Some are related to uh, nutrient depletion, like B twelve, uh, B two, sorry, and magnesium. Um, so yeah, I might try and dig that up and flick it through, maybe for your show notes. So absolutely, please share. Please share. Migraines. And the other thing, B twelve, you know, huge role in DNA synthesis um, mm. throughout our lifespan, but particularly more important when we're trying to make a baby. Uh, and B12 deficiency is quite common, isn't it? It is. Yeah, regardless of whether. Any, mm. Yeah, I don't have any statistics, but yeah, it is It is quite common. And it depends on which blood market you look at as well. If you look at active B12 or vitamin B12 on, on blood. So, yeah, some people could look fine on one metric but actually deficient on the other. I did also see um, an article a few years ago, I'm pretty sure it was MPS Wise, where it said that women who use the combined oral contraceptive pill are more likely to have inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Oh, wow. Yeah. I so, did not know that. Yep. I remember reading that a few years ago. Um, yeah, all this evolving information that we need to keep on top of. Mm-hmm. There, totally. there was an article that I found – I loved it because it was published in 1974, the year that I was born, 1974. <laughs> so that's 46 years old, this, this, this article. Is. <laughs> and the, the, the actual uh, uh, title is Effects of Oral Contraceptives on Various Nutrients is Among Top Priority Research Areas. And it goes, mm. in fiscal 1974 and fiscal 1975, 60, 650,000 will be spent on contracts for studies on birth control methods and their relationship to birth defects. The effect of oral contraceptives on various nutrients is among top interest. It has been shown that oral contraceptives increase blood levels of vitamin A, copper and iron, while they decrease folic acid, zinc and vitamin B12 and B6. 
The decrease of vitamin B6 interferes with the tryptophan mechanism and affects glucose tolerance as well as neurotransmitters, which can be directly related to reports of depression and a higher rate of bladder cancer. A question rose as to whether dietary supplements should counteract the nutritional depletion. The group of unanswered questions was summed up by a question. So the question is, is it the pill or the pill user? Mm. Any comments? Oh, this is such a, I think this is the issue with nutrition research in general and which is why the public gets so frustrated that there's never one clear message um, and it always depends on who you ask is because these questions come into play. You can't separate, you know, is it the pill causing these effects or is it the type of people who are deciding to start the pill have poorer dietary quality or more predisposed to mental health issues or anything else? So it's really tricky, you know, to really separate, tease out those two factors. I mean, how could you? It's, 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 you, you have to then do a randomised crossover, which I, I don't know how many people would sign up to do, um, especially when it comes to the pill. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it, it does raise such an important question that is it the pill or is it the fact that people taking the pill just have poorer dietary quality or are more at risk of mental health conditions to start with? Um, I think you could study those particular things. I remember reading one paper which did show that women taking the pill, and this is again from the 60s and 70s that they studied this, that women taking the pill generally did not have as good quality diet as the non-pill controls. Um, But whether that is because, say, the pill is driving particular cravings or, you know, for some people, they feel as though those, the exogenous hormones, the hormones that they're taking through the pill, are affecting their eating behaviours directly. Uh, whether they are they are or not, it might be a placebo effect. It doesn't matter. The outcome is still the same. Um, so, yes, I think it is. It's such an interesting question to raise, and I think it is very, very tricky to tease out those two factors. That's for sure. There is there is emerging evidence that the pill does affect eating behaviours, actually. Mm, yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, I'll, more I'll, about I'll, that. I can't remember the name of the book, but I will share the book in the case note, in the show notes. Um, mm. And it talks about, it's a whole book about the pill and how it affects your brain pretty much. Uh, pretty powerful well, stuff. Anything else to talk about in regards to nutrients and the pill, Steph? Yeah, I think, you know, that, that question, that, that um, point that the um, that abstract raised about B6 and how it affects tryptophan, um, which is an essential amino acid, uh, which comes from our proteins. If you interfere with that mechanism, whether that be you have a tryptophan deplete diet or you don't have enough B6 to actually make that process work, your ability to produce serotonin isn't as good. And most of your serotonin, 90% is made in your in your gut, in your bowel, in your small intestine, sorry, not your bowel. Uh, so, we know what you mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, Sunday morning. What can you do? Uh, <laughs> barely the first coffee in. Um, so, yeah, so serotonin, it, it can be a, a potential factor that we should be looking into to potentially explain the reports of mental this mental health disturbance in women taking the pill. There is a subset of women who 
just completely don't feel like themselves when they take the pill. And I don't think that should be ignored. If, you know, things normalise after stopping the pill, you know, that could be a potential mechanism, um, as well as, of course, the effects that the hormones have themselves. But, you know, I think it all fits as part of a, a bigger picture as well. And that definitely needs to be taken into account. So I think take-home message uh, is that women should be very mindful of their diet uh, when they go on the pill. Um, mm. But at what point would you say women need to start supplementing? Uh, mm. That's where that's where it gets a bit grey, doesn't it? Uh, if you are on the pill, it's, it's like when patients are on metformin, if I put patients on metformin for insulin resistance, for example, I will stress yep. that B12 deficiency is linked with metformin and that they should be mindful of B12. And I usually put them on a supplement. Um, mm-hmm. Should we be doing the same? Should I be doing the same for the patients going on to the combined oral contraceptive pill? Mm, I don't know. I think. Look, there's some people who sit in this school of thought of um, if you're not on the pill, you should be taking a prenatal, (laughs) like even if you're not trying to conceive, Um, which I think is really interesting because it's like, well, if you're not taking the pill, you should be trying to correct the nutrient deficiencies using a prenatal. Um, However, not all prenatals, by the way, contain all these nutrients probably in the right amounts to correct any kind of nutrient deficiency. So that's one thing to be aware of. I mean, I think I kind of agree with that to an extent. I think if you're not trying to avoid pregnancy by taking uh, using some kind of contraceptive, I think you should be really mindful of your nutritional gaps um, should you not be actively trying to conceive but you're not trying to, I guess, avoid it. I think that is, you know, a prime time to consider a prenatal supplement. Whether to do it concurrently, I don't know. I don't know if there's any evidence. Would, you know, magnesium affect any kind of clotting pathways or calcium? Like, there's so many different factors to take into account. I think the, the safest or the most sensible recommendation that we could make is you're going to, you're intending to come off the pill, whether you're trying to conceive or not, you should in the next kind of three, six, 12 months, depending on how long you've been taking the pill. Some women have been on the pill 13, 14, 15 plus years since they were, you know, early adolescents when they first got their period. Um, and now, you know, they might be 34 trying to trying to conceive. And so I think that a period of time, you know, three to, come off the pill three to six months before you really want to start trying rather than leaving it to the month before and just, you know, going for it the following month. Give yourself some time to recalibrate, find your new normal as well as a time for, you know, nutritional replenishment as well. Um, but in terms of doing it at the same time, I mean, I don't think there's much harm, but I'm not, I, I don't know how it would, interact I think that would probably be almost a a good question for a pharmacist or um, a a medical professional as well to kind of look into whether there's any effect on the efficacy or the absorption or anything like that it'd be really interesting yeah like we'll be we'll taking a supplement actually help if really deep down the pill actually affects my gut absorption etc liver Mm. um I I would just stress to people that when they're put on any form of hormonal therapy or drug full stop for anything that they ask their mm. doctor 
will this cause any nutritional deficiencies? Because mm. yeah, mm. uh, I don't think it's, it's commonly thought of. So the, this, totally. that's what, that's what this, that article made me, made me think of that. Yeah, um, I, wonder, I wonder what the, the most most professional's response to that would be because, well, yeah, like you said, only the last couple of years, it's only really been the last year or so that I've been researching this area and been, you know, really bobsmacked about how long it's been around for and that, you know, nobody really thought about it. Mm. <laughs> well, that's got to change. Totally. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, people on social media that you follow – that mm. you feel provide really good dietary and lifestyle tips. Are you able mm. to share some of their names with us? Oh, yes. Okay. I did not come up with the list before getting on this call. So <laughs> I would say some of um, some really good people to follow in this space are um, my colleague Ebony, who is Project Nutrition on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, she's sharing some really awesome tips around PMS and hormones and mood and all that good stuff. So definitely follow her. She has some amazing infographics that I often share as well. So, and she's based in Newcastle, so she's an awesome dietitian to follow in this space as well. Um, who else do I follow? For hor- I follow a lot of um, US-based dietitians. I follow the women's dietitian. Um, Corey, who's in the States, again, she has really amazing infographics, one of which is about the pill, which I shared on my profile before too, and also um, the hormone dietitian in the US. Um, she focuses, they both focus quite a lot on PCOS, but they talk about women's health in general as well, and they just communicate things really simply uh, and in a, a comprehensive way uh, and in ways that I find people I find easy to understand and digest and also get them to really think about their health and questions to ask their doctor and, and the like. So I think, yeah, they're some of my favourites at the moment that I've been following for a long time and always seems to be the ones that resonate the most with, with me and, and the, my audience as well. So how do people follow you, Steph? Tell us about your social media channels. Yes, so you can follow me on Instagram, the underscore dietologist. I'm on Facebook, the dietologist. I have a Facebook group called Fertility Friendly Food, which any woman who is trying to conceive or thinking about conceiving soon can join for some free lifestyle tips. Um, I also have my blog and website, thedietologist.com.au, and I just launched a podcast a few weeks ago, which is called Fertility Friendly Food, which you can listen to. and. I think that's it. I think that's it. I'm on Twitter too, but I don't really tweet very much, the dietologist. But, you know, you can you can come and follow me there too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big Twitter, uh, Twitterer. Um, and I, no. love, I love your podcast. So good on you, oh, Steph. Thanks. thanks. I love your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, ladies, with Stephanie. Please share it with others if you think it will help them. Check out her website, thedietologist.com.au. I've popped more of her details in the show notes for you. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. And if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. 
Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay fantabulous.